Hello. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming to see Hershey Dwaskin. I just have a couple of announcements to make. Uh, next Thursday, we will have Coast and Loop Reads right here in the auditorium at 6.30 p.m. It's the one book that everyone in Kotzenluk should be reading. Uh, it's called The Paris Deception by Bryn Turnbull. It's free. There will be some live jazz music at 6.30, right before the program starts at 7. Um, also, we have Songs uh, of the Separatim, which is on October 25th. It will be here in the auditorium as well. For that one, you need to register. So if uh, you could go online or you could ask the reference desk and they'll help you register for that. Uh, also, we have the used book sale that will be here on Saturday, October 21st and on Sunday, October 22nd. So that's all I have for you guys today. And Mr. Dwoskin, the floor is yours. Thank you guys for coming. Yeah, this one works too. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, Angela. So I have a couple of different subjects to try to speak about today. Um, we're, we'll go from the general to the specific, like we sometimes do. I'm just going to turn this off. So hi, welcome everyone. It's a gorgeous day. For anyone who isn't here, I don't blame them because it's so beautiful. We've had this streak of weather that's been like crazy, crazy, crazy. I can't even remember how, uh, you know, how long this, this has been going on, but uh, sunny, not too hot, not too cold. I've been out on my bike three of the past four days. Well, today I don't count. But really, if you have a chance to go for a walk or go up on the mountain and uh, see the changing leaves up and up north, it's just uh, it's just fabulous. It's just really this is the best of the best that we normally have. 
Uh, I always say from about September 15th, yeah, let's call it from these days, this day and age, from around September 15th to the end of October, um, usually it's really the best that we have all year long. I wanted to speak about uh, a specific event that occurred this past uh, week, uh, this past couple of weeks, but this past week in general. <clears throat> And then work from that into the, the more general uh, subject. And I have, I, unusually, I brought a page to read that I don't normally read anything, but I, I, I just came across something um, that was just so, so well stated and so well written, I figured I, I couldn't do a better job myself. So I'll read it to you after when I'm finished this part over here. Um, <clears throat> And it comes from one of my favorite, you know, I, I read a lot of very, very different publications from so many different sources. Um, and most of it, of course, online as we have nowadays. But I do subscribe to The Economist because I like to read the whole journal, the whole magazine. It's just got so much good information in it. It's so well written. And it's written from a point of view which is neither to the left nor to the right. Um, neither uh, up nor down. It's just a kind of a well-written, small L liberal magazine that has been published since the 1840s. Um, so it's, it comes from Great Britain. Uh, the quality of writing, of course, is excellent because it comes from Great Britain, uh, of the more educated part there. Uh, it doesn't have, it's not a uh, trashy magazine, it's not a uh, kind of a people magazine, it's not a low-level low written magazine, like, like uh, well, not low, but let's say, you know, magazines like Time magazine are aimed at a, a kind of a just middle of the road or, or, or um, yeah, we'll call it middle America. This magazine is aimed at uh, one notch above that. More people who are more educated, it's written in, 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 in more uh, elaborate language. And uh, it's, just a, it's just a wonderful all around, even though it deals with economics as their main subject, but it goes from, the, from politics to history, to the arts, to science, to culture, uh, to books, to everything else. So it's got a really a wide range of subjects that it treats all the time. So that's a new one. I have another one that I read as I could recommend to you, something called New Lines Magazine. And this New Lines Magazine, I read it online. It has usually three essays a day. And the essays are quite long. So they're maybe seven, eight to 10 pages long. Uh, and uh, they, so they really take a subject and look at it in depth. So that's Another good source that I look at, you know. But this is, uh, can you all see, can you see here? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a bit dark. I mean, I, I hope you could see. But anyway, this is a kind of a, a weird looking map, but it's a map of Armenia, Georgia, Russia, and uh, the, uh, the countries around the, this is called the Caucasus region. So the, the Caucasus region is named after the mountains that go all the way along in this direction. So a big mountain range here. 
And, you know, we get the word Caucasian, meaning somebody who's kind of white in skin color. They call that Caucasian. And it comes from, I don't know why, but it comes from the Caucasus Mountains, from this mountain range over here. And um, the mountain range sort of separates, um, we'll call it three great powers. Russia on the one side, uh, the Turkey or the Ottoman Empire in the olden days on the other side, and Iran or Persia on this side. Iran or Persia on this side. So these three great powers have always tried to squeeze from one direction or another. They've tried to squeeze this region here called the Caucasus, and it's made up of three former Soviet republics. Georgia over here, which I can... Uh, I should, I'll draw a map of that separately. Armenia, the smallest one, and Azerbaijan on this side over here uh, to round out the three. Georgia and Armenia are majority Christian Orthodox countries, and Azerbaijan is a Muslim country. So, um, uh, and all around here you have Russia, which was is predominantly Russian Orthodox, Turkey, which is Sunni Muslim, and the Iran, which is Shiite Muslim. So you have a whole mixture of religions all in here, and the groups, peoples who lived in this region here, um, uh, are uh, uh, in the olden days were a whole mixture of peoples a mixture of smaller groups of people, smaller languages. But over the years, of course, things get to be distilled and you end up with a majority, large majority with small minorities. Um, so that's a kind of a general look at this region over here. <clears throat> uh, the region was never, uh, we'll call it super, super wealthy or super, super poor. The people who lived here, even in the Soviet times, the people who lived here were people who were, um, we'll call them middle class in general, because there were a lot of um, uh, there were a lot of advantages that this region had, even in the Soviet Union times, that other places didn't have, and one of the things that it did have is a generally mild climate. So uh, it had a generally mild climate because on this side over here, I didn't write it down, but this is the Black Sea over here, the huge Black Sea. And this is the Caspian Sea over here. So these two huge bodies of water uh, um, gave the area a relatively mild climate compared to other places. In other words, not too cold, not too hot. Um, that was the, the way it went. The Caspian Sea is considered to be the world's largest lake. It's by far and away bigger than Lake Superior by a mile, which is a kind of uh, the second largest lake in the world, and not in the volume of water, but in the surface area of water. The Caspian Sea is almost like an ocean, so that's how big it is. Now, so you've heard about this fighting that's gone on between Azerbaijan and Armenia. They've just finished the third war that they've had since 1994. 
So uh, it's 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 been quite a dispute. This dispute goes back to the Soviet I, Soviet Union. The Soviet Union conquered these three uh, these three countries that were briefly independent after the First World War. So when the First World War ended, um, when the First World War ended, these three countries declared their independence, uh, but they didn't last long. The Soviets came in, the Red Army came in, it conquered these three places, and it made them part republics of the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union, it was used to be called the Union, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. So uh, they weren't republics in any sense of being independent, but they gave them that name to sort of bolster their pride in their own um, uh, history, in their own language, in their own culture. And the idea of the Soviet Union was to grab all these countries and pretend as if they have some autonomy in order to get them to support the whole Soviet system and the Communist Party. That was the idea. And they set up communist parties in each of these places. And the head of that communist party became the head of these so-called republics. But they never had any independence whatsoever. Now, another trick of the Soviet Union was to make sure that these different republics that were in the Soviet Union would never want to separate from the Soviet Union. So the way they accomplished that was to try to make sure that there were minorities in each of these republics, so that if any time, so that these, the presence of these minorities, especially minorities who had a majority next door, that these minorities would prevent a republic from seceding because these minorities would always be extra loyal to the Soviet Union and also would have ties to the republics next door, which would complicate the whole idea of secession. That was the, in other words, there's another way of putting it, it's kind of called divide and conquer. So you divide up the people that you're ruling to make sure that these people would never get together into a, a sort of a solid force and then try to secede from the Soviet Union. That was their policy. And they carried it out in many of the different republics that they ruled, the ones in Central Asia, like Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and places like that. And um, uh, also they did it here in Georgia and in Azerbaijan. So this is what we're coming down now to have a look at. So within Azerbaijan, the capital of Azerbaijan is called Baku, and it's right on the Caspian Sea. Um, there was a very large Armenian community living in Baku, and there were Armenians spread pretty well throughout, throughout the whole uh, Middle East, um, uh, but their, their homeland was here in Armenia, which in the olden days spread far into Eastern Turkey. All this whole region of Eastern Turkey here that I've marked out was once uh, the Armenian heartland before the First World War. You've all heard of the Armenian Genocide, where during the First World War, the Ottoman uh, soldiers rounded up 
mil a million people living here in eastern Turkey and chased them out of eastern Turkey into the desert of Syria where they either died or a minority survived and scattered all around the Middle East. So scattered to Egypt, scattered to Palestine, um, uh, scattered to Syria, and uh, that's how they basically try to survive this so-called Armenian genocide. The goal of Turkey in doing this was not to, we know the term genocide as, a, as, as it relates to the Jewish population of Europe. The goal of Turkey was not to kill off every single living Armenian, which was the goal of Hitler to kill off every single living Jew. It was to get rid of them to move them out of this whole area of Eastern Turkey. So why did they want that? Because in the Second World, in the First World War, Russia was fighting on the side of France and Great Britain, and the Ottoman Empire was fighting on the side of Austria and Germany. So the Armenians were this large Christian minority living in Eastern Turkey, Christian Orthodox minority, and their fear was that if Russia ever tried to invade the Ottomans from the uh, east, that all these Armenians living here would be kind of traitors to the Ottoman Empire and would welcome the Russian troops and giving the Russian troops an easy gateway to go all the way to Istanbul, um, on the other side of Turkey. And there were some local Armenian sort of self-defense armed groups who were there to try to protect themselves against the other people who might attack them. So using the cover of the First World War, the uh, Ottomans decided to get rid of all of the Armenians in eastern Turkey. But they didn't get rid of the Armenians living in Western Turkey, meaning in Istanbul. So it wasn't, in other words, this sort of genocide. It was what you would call today ethnic cleansing. Get rid of a whole group of people, just get them out. And while they were doing this, by the way, they also got rid of another minority, another Christian minority living here, especially in Eastern Turkey, Southeastern Turkey, called the Assyrians. So the Assyrians were Christians living in um, Eastern Turkey, living in Syria, and living in Iraq. So this is a whole, these were Aramaic-speaking Christians, mostly Orthodox. Half a million of them were more or less kicked out of Eastern Turkey. But the job wasn't done that efficiently. So they left a few thousand living in eastern Turkey where they're still living today. And I visited them when I was doing my trip in eastern Turkey, so I saw them there. But there were no Armenians whatsoever that were left. Many Armenians that were there hid themselves, pretended to be Turkish Muslims, and lived their lives up until today. Their descendants are still there living around there, but they've become assimilated to becoming uh, uh, Muslim Turks. You know, to only nowadays are some of them discovering that their grandmother 
was, you know, married off to uh, a, a, a Turk in order to survive the the Armenian um, Holocaust. So that's aside. Okay, let's cross the border here to Armenia. They became independent, but they are just a small portion of what was once historical Armenia. That's what I'm trying to get at. Now, in Azerbaijan, there was this region over here that I'm pointing out to you that looks like a kind of a kidney. And this region was called by the Soviets Nagorno-Karabakh. Nagorno-Karabakh. So this place here, what's what's fluttering? Is there a bat? A bat here or something like that? I think there's a fly on the projector. Oh, a fly on the projector. High up for me to get to it. So this region was 75% Armenian, and it was given the status of an autonomous republic within Azerbaijan. That was the status of this region that I'm look, showing you over here. It was really close to Armenia. This is really close, maybe 30 miles, not, not very much. But the Soviets, in their wisdom, decided to make it like an island and give it a, a republic status as they gave many other places in, in uh, the Soviet Union. So there were many of these called semi-autonomous republics. And they even had divisions that were even lower than a semi-autonomous republic. They had one called uh, a semi-autonomous oblast. And uh, the uh, Birobijan, the homeland of the Jewish people in the Soviet Union, was given that status, not as high as a semi-autonomous republic, but one status lower than that. So they kind of mixed it up, the Soviets, you know, just to try to get people's support in that way. But the whole thing during the Soviet Union was none of this mattered. Because they were everything was run from Moscow anyway. And everything was run by the Communist Party of the Soviet Union anyway. So these little boundaries and divisions had very little practical difference in the people's lives. Comes the collapse of the Soviet Union. 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. So what happened? All of these different 16 different republics declared their independence. And Russia became an independent country also. So Russia didn't say, well, we're still the Soviet Union. Russia said, we're not the Soviet Union. There is no more Soviet Union. We're now Russia. And we take over a lot of the baggage of the Soviet Union because the capital was in Moscow, the administration was in Moscow, but Armenia declared independence, Azerbaijan declared independence, and one thing that happened right off the bat in 1994 was Armenia tried and succeeded to incorporate this region into their country. So they had a brief war, and what they did was they kind of just took over this region over here like this. They kind of kicked out the Azerbaijanis, the Azeris that were living here, and they made this into sort of one country. Briefly, from 1994, and that went up until 2000, when there was another battle, and then in 2020, there was even a bigger one, 
where the Azeris now came and they took over this, they took over this whole region here. They took a big slice of this over here. And what they did was they, they agreed to a ceasefire and the ceasefire was supposed to be um, managed by Russia. And what Russia agreed to do was to try to get rid of, demilitarize this whole area. And Russia said that this road here, going from Armenia to Nagorno-Karabakh, this road would be um, uh, supervised by Russia. It's the only road going from here to there. Otherwise, it's all mountains. It's all mountains. You can't get over there. So that's what Russia did in 20 in 2020. So already things were not looking good for the Armenians. And um, two years later, Russia got involved in this war in the Ukraine. They took their soldiers out of there and they sort of gave up looking after this road. And the Azeris then declared a blockade over here because like, what they said was the Armenians were moving arms from here to here. And so they blockaded the whole road and they cut off this area for over a year from anything. So they had almost no supplies coming in. Then just now this week, they said, okay, that's it. We're gonna come in here and we're gonna bomb the country. And they did. And in two days, they took over the whole country. A ceasefire was arranged and that was the end of that. So what they said was, look, all the people who are living here are welcome to live here, but as Azeri citizens, not as Armenian citizens, as Azeri citizens. Because of the bad blood between the two sides and the expulsions and the... That's my phone. I thought I shut my phone off. Sorry. Sorry about that. Let me just... So the two, the two sides had no trust one with another. And what happened was there's 120,000 people living here. In one week, 100 out of 120,000 moved by car along the road into Armenia. So that's the end, the end of this region being an Armenian populated region uh, forever. Just as this whole Eastern Turkey, which was once majority Armenian or almost majority, has been, re the Armenians have been kicked out of there forever. Um, and that's what the situation is. So this is a historic uh, change in, in population, a historic change. And perhaps you could say it's a continuation of the elimination of Christians from the Middle East. That's how I would look at it, in that same stream. So we, we often don't think of this, but if you go to before the First World War, the Christians were either large majorities or, or, or large minorities or majorities in many places in the Middle East, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, and uh, in this region over here as well. And, you know, in 100 years, from 1914 to 2023, in that 100 years, 
either by uh, force or just by kind of something less than force, uh, the Christians have left the Middle East. And uh, there are, today, there are no countries in the Middle East that have a Christian majority. And even Lebanon, which once had one, the majority, the, there, there the, the Christians in Lebanon are down now down to a third of the country. The Christians in Syria, which were once twenty percent of the country, are now down to about five percent. The Christians in Iraq, uh, similarly, uh, after when when Saddam was overthrown and the ISIS took over, the Christians were all living in the northern part of the country. They got kicked out. The last country in the Middle East that has a lot of Christians in it, which country is it? Right, Egypt. So Egypt is about the last one, with about 10% of the country being Christian, but the country has 100 million people, so you got about 10 million Christians living there. But their status is far from secure. There have been all kinds of attacks on churches and all kinds of burning downs of churches and things like that. But um, they, uh, they are still there. Um, Israel is the one country in the Middle East where the Christian community has, hasn't been directly threatened and where the number of Christians in the country is growing uh, slowly rather than going down fast as it went down in Iran, in, in um, Iraq, in uh, uh, you, you know, in Turkey, of course. So it's it's kind of a historical trend in that way. Maybe it's the fact that the economic situation in these places has never been great, and the opportunities to come to America, to South America, to North America, or to Western Europe is better. So over this century, there's been a huge amount of migration of, of uh, Christians from the Middle East over to the, you know, Western Europe and to, and to uh, North America. So that's that. So that's, that's an explanation of what happened over here. Any, any comments, questions about this? Looking around, yes, yeah. Turkey was at war with Armenia in 1915 when they well, they No, it was part of the First World War, except that there was no country called Armenia, and Turkey wasn't fighting with uh, with uh, Turkey wasn't fighting with Armenia at that time. Uh, by that time, the Russia had already uh, conquered that region. But when the First World War broke, when the Soviet Union, when Russia collapsed during the First World War, those three places declared independence from Russia briefly, and then the Soviet Union took them over. So Turkey was never at war with Armenia during the First World War, but Turkey, like I said, their explanation was that uh, they, 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 they ethnically cleansed the Armenians uh, to prevent them from collaborating with Russia should Russia come in to eastern Turkey. I mean, you know, and they say it wasn't a genocide, but it was in essence is what it was. In essence, it was. I just want to point out one other, another little thing here. So this goes to the same subject. So this is, again, the Black Sea. 
a different thing here. And this is the country called Georgia here. So funny how Americans will confuse Georgia with Georgia. You know, it's very funny like that. Georgia had two semi-autonomous republics put in it by the Soviet Union. One was over here, a little one called South Ossetia, two S's. And another big one over here, another big one over here, this whole section at the end here called Abkhazia. Lots of people don't know these things, but it doesn't matter. And the capital of that was Sukhumi. Sukhumi with a KH. So in 2004, the Soviet unions were very, very, sorry, Russia, Russia was very upset with Georgia. Why? Because they had something called the Rose Revolution, where Democrat, Democrats and dem democracy and a free press and all of those things took over the country. And one thing that Russia has always been afraid of, and Putin also, they know that deep down the Russian people, like everybody else, would much prefer to live in a free country than in not a free country. And Georgia, you know, had this election and they kicked out the sort of pro-Russia, corrupt officials that Russia is used to dealing with. And instead they put in a free demo dem democratic, uh, you know, president. So they were afraid that something would happen. And what Russia did was they invaded these two places militarily. Georgia lost how Georgia could not fight a war against Russia. There was a brief military, you know, thing, but of course it didn't work. And so what Russia did was they took over these two places and installed pro-Russian, you know, corrupt officials to run these places. And the Georgian people who were living here, this is a pretty small place, but the Georgian people that were living here were pushed out. Again, this sort of ethnic cleansing idea. And um, so that uh, to this day, this so-called republic recognized only by Russia is now run by pro-Russian officials. And um, technically it's part of Georgia, technically it's part of Georgia, but Georgia has no control or any any say over over these two places. So it's a, just a continuation of what I was saying before about Nagorno-Karabakh. The same thing applies to Abkhazia and to South Ossetia. So that's all. That's that's that. Just because it's it's just so related. That's why. And Tbilisi is the capital of Georgia, and it's not that far, not that far from here. So. At one point, the Soviets were threatening to take over the whole capital, and that's when the Georgians gave up and they said, "Okay, you know, we will, we will sort of give up our claim to, you know, we'll just withdraw from here, from this place over here." And then overnight, what the Soviets, what the Russians did was they had a border fence, you know, like a fence between these two places. Overnight, they moved the fence. They moved the fence about one kilometer inward to be closer to the main road. The main road, there's a main road here that goes like this. They, to be closer to the main road, they just move the fence like that a little bit to just to take over some, some more territory.
Anyway, that's all. Now, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read you this article. And the article is entitled, How Paranoid Nationalism Corrupts. So this is what the idea is. In other words, what they're saying is, you have nationalism on the one hand, like we see in Russia, like we see in other places, and corruption on the other hand. And what's the connection between the two things? I'm going to go over here so the light, light's a little better. Um, people seek strength and solace in their tribe, their faith, or their nation. And you could see why. If they feel empathy for their fellow citizens, they're more likely to pull together for the common good. In the 19th and 20th centuries, love of country spurred people to seek their freedom from imperial capitalists in distant countries. Today, Ukrainians are making historic sacrifices to defend their homeland against Russian invaders. Unfortunately, the love of us, in quotation marks, has an ugly cousin, the fear and suspicion of them, in quotation marks. A paranoid nationalism that works against tolerant values, such as openness to unfamiliar people and new ideas. What is more, Cynical politicians have come to understand that they can exploit this sort of nationalism by whipping up mistrust and hatred and harnessing them to benefit themselves and their cronies. The post-war order of open trade and universal values is strained by the rivalry of America and China. Ordinary people feel threatened by forces beyond their control, from hunger and poverty to climate change and violence, Using paranoid nationalism, parasitic politicians prey on their citizens' fears and degrade the global order, all in pursuit of their own power. Um, as our briefing describes, paranoid nationalism works by a mix of exaggerations and lies. And this is what's the idea. Vladimir Putin claims that the Ukraine is a NATO puppet whose Nazi cliques threaten Russia. India's ruling party warns that Muslims are waving a love jihad to seduce Hindu maidens. Tunisia's president decries a black African plot to replace his country's Arab majority. Preachers of this paranoid nationalism harm the targets of their rhetoric, obviously, but their real intention is to hoodwink their own followers. By inflaming nationalist fervor, self-serving leaders can more easily win power. And once in office, they can distract public attention from their abuses uh, by calling out the supposed enemies who would otherwise keep them in check. So this is the plan. This is the plot. And you could think of Trump, by the way, this doesn't apply just to these three countries. It applies to lots of places. The United States is a place. Israel is another place where the leaders of the country first have to create an enemy that isn't there. Then they tell you that this enemy is out to destroy you, destroy the country, or, or do something bad. And then they say, well, I am the only person who could defend the country against this supposed enemy. And, that, and then once they do that, in the meantime, they could, of course, you know, steal whatever they can get their hands on. So, so that's that's the 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 idea, anyway.
So Ravel, so um, Daniel Ortega, so this is the president of Nicaragua, shows how effective this can be. Since he returned to power in 2006, he has demonized the United States, branded his opponents as agents of the Yankee empire. He controls the media and put his family in positions of influence. He has nine children. Every one of them has a, a huge job there. Um, after mass protests erupted in 2018 at the regime's graft and brutality, the Ortegas called the protesters vampires and locked them up. On August 23rd, they banned the Jesuits, a Catholic order that has worked in Nicaragua since before it was a country, on the pretext that a Jesuit university was a, quote, center of terrorism. Rabble rousing often leads to robbery. Like the Ortega, some nationalist leaders seek to capture the state by stuffing it with their cronies or ethnic kin. This technique under Jacob Zuma, the former president of South Africa, is one reason why the national power company is so riddled with corruption that it can't keep the lights on. Our statistical analysis shows that governments have grown more nationalistic since 2012. And that more nationalistic, the more nationalistic they are, the more corrupt they tend to be. So they have a graph, it's, I don't have it here, but it's on the next page, a, a huge graph of studies of looking at um, the last 20 years of history over 80 different countries and trying to correlate the amount of nationalism in the country with the amount of corruption in the country. And there's a positive correlation. It's not always the case that the more nationalistic a leader is, the more corrupt he is, but often it is the, it, it goes that way. And you could have corrupt leaders without being nationalistic leaders, but there is this tie between the two. That's what they're trying to show. The but the more important role of paranoid nationalism is as a tool to dismantle the checks and balances that underpin good governance, a free press, independent courts, NGOs, that means non-governmental organizations, and a loyal opposition. So this is the idea that, you, that somebody who is a nationalist will use his idea of nationalism to try to get rid of any check on his power. So what are the checks? Like they said, a free press, independent courts, NGOs, meaning organizations from other who, who are backed by outside uh, for, or outside um, uh, you know uh, universities or outside uh, organizations which send their observers into the country to see are the elections fair uh, are poor people being fed is is the nature being looked after so all these peoples are considered enemies by the um, by a, a guy who wants to be a nationalist dictator. Uh, and of course, a loyal opposition, because, you know, a loyal opposition is meant to keep in check the person in power. So if you think of, just think of the last president of the United States, he demonized the media, he calls the courts now uh, puppets of, uh, of the Democrats. Um, uh, he, he uh, any kind of foreign study group that comes in, he called them, you know, some kind of uh, Chinese spies. And um, that's that's exactly what you do. You try to convince your own people that anybody who is against him personally means that they are against the country in general. 
And Mr. Netanyahu is a prime example of somebody like this. Um, they just uh, today, I should say, they just decided that they want to set up a media watchdog to make sure that everything that's written in the media is true. Meaning, of course, anything written in the media is pro-Netanyahu. And um, so they, they just set, they're just trying to set this up today. I just was reading about it. And, you know, you'll hear more about it, uh, you know, as we go on. And uh, to try, you know, to say, oh, if, if the media publishes something that's, quote, untrue, then they have the right to take away the license of that, of that um, you know, uh, organization or that 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 uh, you know that uh, newspaper or radio station or or or, or whatever. So this is a, 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 the latest attempt to try to again remove democracy where it doesn't suit when it doesn't suit you. Uh, leaders do not say, "I want to purge the electoral commission so I can block my political political opponents." They say that the electoral Electoral commissioners are traitors. They do not admit that they want to suppress NGOs to evade security. They pass laws defining as, quote, foreign agents, any organization that receives foreign funds or even advice, and impose draconian controls on such bodies or simply ban them. They do not shut down the press. They own it. By one estimate, at least 50 countries have curbed civil society in recent years. So again, I'm going to point out that, that Israel tried to do the same thing, that they want the idea that any foreign-backed opponent of the Netanyahu government should be considered as hostile foreign agents, but not the ones that support him. As an example, the president of Tunisia, Mr. Saeed, before he blamed black people for his country's problems, he was unpopular because of his dismal handling of the economy. Now Tunisians are cheering his bold stand against a tiny, transient minority. Meanwhile, Mr. Saeed has gutted the judiciary, closed the anti-corruption commission, and graft has gotten worse. So Mr. Saeed, who's the president of Tunisia, he said, the reason Tunisia has all the problems is because of black migrants who've come into the country. These black migrants who've come from Africa, right, because Tunisia is in the top of Africa, they don't really want to live in Tunisia. They just got there so they could go to Europe, save up some money and go to Europe where they're, you know, that's their ultimate destination. But because these black Africans are, are hanging around, quote unquote, hanging around because some of them get involved in crime, because they live in, in poor conditions, it's easy to blame them for all the problems in the country. And that's what Mr. Saeed has, has specifically said. Um, abuses are easier when institutions are weak. The despots of Nicaragua, Iran, or Zimbabwe are far less constrained than the leaders of, let's say, Hungary or Israel. But in all these countries, the men in power have invented or exaggerated threats to the nation as a pretext to weaken the courts, weaken the press, and weaken the opposition. And this has either prolonged the corrupt administration or made it worse. Paranoid nationalism is part of a backlash against good government. Good government. The end of the Cold War led to a blossoming of a democracy around the world, 
Country after country introduced free elections and limits on executive power. Many power and plunder-hungry politicians did not like this. Amid the general disillusion that followed the financial crisis of 2007 to 2009, they saw an opportunity to take back control. Paranoid nationalism gave them a tool to dismantle some of these pesky checks and balances. Because these restraints often came with Western encouragement, if not Western funding, leaders have found it easier to depict the champions of good government as being foreign stooges. In countries that have endured colonial rule or interference by the United States, as many Latin American countries have had, the message finds a ready audience. If a leader can create a climate of such deep suspicion that loyalty comes before truth, then every critic can be branded a, a traitor. Paranoid nationalism is, I have one paragraph left. Paragra paranoid nationalism is not about to disappear. Leaders are learning from each other. They are also freer to act than they were even a decade ago. Not only has the West lost faith in its program of spreading democracy and good government, but China, a paranoid nationalist that's inclined to spot slights and threats around every corner, China is promoting the idea that the universal values of tolerance and good government are a racist form of imperialism. It prefers non-interference from abroad and zero criticism at home. If they could only see through the lies behind paranoid nationalism, ordinary people would realize how wrong China's campaign is. There's nothing racist or disloyal about wishing for a better life. That's the that's the um, the one page editorial in in um, in the Economist that uh, that I just read. Uh, it's it's a couple of weeks old, but I just happened to read the edition today. So it sums it up pretty well. You know, you could see these common threads go through every different country. You know, you have a kind of a nationalist in power. He blames the minorities for all the country's problems. Then if the press is critical, he tries to pass laws against the press. Then if there's a, a, a court case against him, he tries to suborn the courts one way or another to get rid of the judges or to change the system of judges, et cetera, et cetera. So this sort of theme has run through, you know, Cuba is such a great example. If it wasn't for the American boycott of Cuba, the, the communists would long be gone. But the moment America says to Cuba, you know, we, we want you out of power, then the Cuban government says anything that's been wrong in this country since 1960 is the fault of the Americans. If America just would have just ignored the Cuban revolution and just let the country fall on its own, it would have happened already. I mean, you know, there are not many countries in the world that still have communist governments like, like Cuba's. But the fact that they can hold up America as being uh, the cause of their problems means that they don't have to fix their own problems because America is the one who's, who's the fault of, you know, who's at fault. Anyway, so that's that. Um, Um, let me just see now. We have this, 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 this. Uh, yeah. Let's, um, let me just, in a little bit of a way, talk, uh, we have a few minutes. Well, first of all, is there any questions or comments about what, um, 
what uh, I just said. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it reminds me, what I just said reminds me of a famous quotation from Jacques Parizeau. Remember what he said, it was the result of the ethnics and what, what else was it? ethnics? Is money and the ethnic vote. That was it, money and the ethnic vote. So, I mean, this that, that follows exactly the same program as what we were just reading about. Paranoid nationalism means that you make up enemies, you go who are much weaker than you, of course, and then you go after them um, uh, and you try to tell the people that, um, you know, all the failures in society are not because of me, but it's because of our internal enemies that are always against us. And we have to arm ourselves against them. Yeah. Do you want the, the Yahoo into that? Absolutely. It's strictly, he's going right down the same path. Right down the same path. What press has he suppressed? What human well, well, the the whole program, the whole now, as as the as the article said, he said in some places, in some places which they mentioned Hungary and Israel, the protections against this kind of depredation are stronger, meaning that there still is a kind of a free press, there still is a kind of independent courts, uh, there still are. Uh, elections that are held that are free, so the 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 um, absolute authority that these people have uh, is not absolute in those countries and in those cases. But but uh, Netanyahu's um, uh, program since he got elected a year ago is to try to eliminate all those checks and balances that exist in the country, um, you know, that promote a free democracy. So what's one of the checks and balances is to get rid of the power of the Supreme Court to overrule any law which is a racist or anti-democratic law. Uh, the next thing is on the press, um, he wanted to and did uh, agree to promote a press that would be only friendly to him. And this is one of the reasons that he's being uh, held up in, in court. One of the cases that he has in court is that he, um, uh, in exchange for getting a press that would be pro Netanyahu, he gave licenses to, uh, to uh, establish um, a network that would be only friendly to him. In other words, when it came up to being a, a, a broadcast network that would be given a license, he said, well, only if you're friendly to me will I give you a license. Now, he didn't say it exactly like that, but that was what the whole intention was. So, um, and then, as I said, uh, he wanted to pass a law saying that any foreign um, uh, institutions, uh, an NGO would a have to register with the government to get a permission to operate, and that any ones that were unfriendly to his government, he would take away their license. So, which NGO in Israel has has his most is he most upset about? Is something called the New Israel Fund? The New Israel Fund promotes everything that he doesn't want. It promotes 
um, uh, rights for non-Orthodox Judaism. So you know that in Israel, up until up until 20 odd years ago, either you were Orthodox or you were secular. And the two came into conflict only when the Orthodox tried to impose their values on things like Shabbat uh, openings and closings and things like that. But over the years, because many North American Jews moved to Israel, they started um, new varieties of Judaism, conservative Judaism, reform Judaism. And this is something that the Orthodox just couldn't tolerate. They, they, they don't mind that somebody in Israel has no religion. What they do mind is when somebody says, I have Judaism as a religion, but it's not your Judaism. It's a different kind. So when women wanted to pray at the Wailing Wall, when uh, women want, when when uh, people wanted to pray in public in mixed congregations without a separation of men and women, this got this got to them very badly, and they went ahead to the government to say to try to get the government to outlaw this kind of public prayer by non-Orthodox Jews, which the government knuckled under and did. Um, uh, the selection of judges in the Supreme Court has just been, uh, the, the method has been changed by Netanyahu so that the government would be the one naming the judges on the court. So like I said, you get rid of a free court, of, a, of an independent court, you get rid of an independent press, and, um, you know, those are, those are the ways, the stepping stones to a kind of, you know, uh, a kind of nationalistic dictatorship. It won't happen in Israel. It can't because the institutions are still too strong. But you can shade around the edges to move in that direction, which is um, what they tried to do. Now, you had, he named a minister who served in jail for bribery for two years. Um, and who the court said when they sentenced him to a light sentence of two years instead of 10 years, was what he deserved, they said, this person shall no longer have a political life in Israel. That was the deal. You go to jail just for two years, and then he had a second charge, which was, was put on probation on condition that he would not serve in a political figure. Guess what Netanyahu did? He named him a minister. He named him a minister, despite what the court said. And so what happened is that the, the opponents went to the Supreme Court to say, hey, you know, you got to follow up your judgment. And, um, uh, you know, and so they did follow up on the judgment. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, Mr. Netanyahu was forced, is that me? He was forced to, to not name this guy as a minister, Mr. Derry. And um, Mr. Derry said, no, I, I, you know, I'm changing my mind. I won't, uh, you know, I, I agree not to serve because um, I don't want to, you know, create such a fuss. But if you don't have these protections against um, tyranny of the majority, is what I would call it, then you have a democracy. Nothing says that the PQ wasn't elected democratically. They were. The seats were not fairly apportioned, uh, 
but they were elected democratically. But it doesn't mean that you have the right to do whatever you want, which is what they did with Bill 101, which is what they did you know, with Bill 96 and Bill 21. All these laws are illegal. They are illegal by the Quebec Charter of Rights. We have a notwithstanding clause that allows you to jump over that protection. But this is what I'm saying that, um, that uh, you can have a paranoid nationalism which takes over democracy and eventually this leads to a kind of corruption because if you take away all the checks and balances, if you take away the independent newspapers, if you take away um, you know, the, the right to question you, then you know, that's what happens. I would even point out that Trump's refusal to be participating in a debate is something that, I mean, she, a politician should be condemned for saying, well, I don't want to be questioned. I don't want to be, I don't want to have to stand up for what I've done. I don't want to, I don't want a hostile press. I like Fox News interviewing me. I won't be interviewed by anybody else. So when you are in that mindset, you are acting in an anti-democratic fashion. And if you're able to convince people that you're not, you're the right one. It's the it's the liberal elite press who are influenced by foreign and hostile agents. Then you're one step closer to a kind of a dictatorship. And um, that that's what this article is pointing out. And once you get to that point, then nobody questions what you can do. You can name your son-in-law to be the head of the CBC. You can name your daughter-in-law to be the head of something else. You can, you know, put all your relatives in big positions and, and nobody's going to question it because they're afraid to. They're afraid if they question it, they'll, they'll just take away your newspaper license. So that's where things go sort of step by step by step by step in, in that way. And uh, that's, what this, um, this, that's what this article is pointing out. I just want to, cl I want to close by saying that we are now... Uh, we are now one year and one month away from the American elections. So things are starting to heat up because everyone has an eye toward those elections. And, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, ground to cover before then. But uh, America's political calendar is not like anybody else's. Uh, what we can do in 40 days, it takes them a year to do. So, um, uh, you know, you'll be hearing a lot more about political stories coming out of the U.S. with a view, with an eye toward those elections. And, uh, and uh, you know, all I could say is that the vast, the, the polls are showing the majority of Americans do not want either Trump or Biden to be the candidates. That's the, you know, more than 65% of the people, if asked, would you like other candidates beside Biden or Trump, they say yes. Because, you know, of their being old and their being around for so long and, and all the other things that go along with that. But what are the Americans going to get? Biden and Trump. So it's already, you know, you're starting off from a position of not satisfying what the people uh, not the ones, you know, not satisfying what the people are, are asking for. Yeah. I asked about the PQ 
Well, um, you know, the fact is that uh, that seat, Jean Talon in Quebec City, was, I believe, Jean Lesage's seat when he was the premier of Quebec in, in, in the 1960s during the Cultural Revolution, uh, during the Quiet Revolution. Um, uh, the PQ aren't dead. Every democracy requires a change of government. Otherwise, it doesn't become a democracy anymore. It's rare, but not impossible, to have a legitimate democracy that wins election after election after election. It's happened in Singapore now for 40, 50, 50 years. But usually you need a change. And the question is, okay, the CAQ, who's going to replace them as a choice for government? And the last election showed how fractured Quebec's electoral uh, system is. There were four parties that won almost the same number of votes in Quebec. The, the, um, the uh, Liberal Party, uh, the Quebec Solidaire Party, and the Conservative Party, I think three, Did I say four, no, three. All those parties won 15% of the vote, give or take, and the uh, CAC won you know, close to 40%. So um, the question is then who, you know, who emerges as the credible opposition to the CAC when the time comes for them to uh, to give up power? And, um, you know, the PQ uh, was almost written out of existence. You know, they got three seats in the last election and they only got one of those three seats by fluke because the Quebec Solidaire uh, candidate was caught, uh, uh, what, what was she doing? Taking out somebody else's envelopes from people's mailboxes and putting in her own, something like that. So they're not dead. You know, that's it. They're not dead. Um, if you look at the party programs between the CAC, the Quebec Solidaire, and the PQ, those three together are all nationalist parties. And uh, if you add their votes together, you know, they come out to a majority of Quebec. Uh, and the Liberal Party, you know, the last, in, in the Jean Talon seat last time, they ran an Anglophone as a candidate. I mean, in Quebec City, how many Anglophones are there? And the, the Julie White was her name. The question is, like, I mean, they couldn't find another candidate to run who was, you know, a, a Francophone candidate in Quebec City? This time they did run one who, who had half decent credentials, but who's the party leader of the Liberal Party? Where is the Liberal Party in Quebec? Um, there was a very nice, uh, in the last week's Suburban, that a very nice um, uh, letter to the editor saying that the Quebec Liberal Party has to kind of reinvent itself. And, um, you know, so far we don't see anything like that. So it will end up like the last election that the Quebec Liberal Party, who ran this province for so long, um, can only win seats in the non-Francophone parts of Quebec. And, uh, you know, that's surely not a recipe for winning a, 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 federal, a provincial election. So it's interesting. You know, what's so interesting is that we have different parties. 
It's not one. If we just had two parties, then we know inevitably people will get tired of one party and elect the other party. But when you've got, you know, four other choices, so it, it becomes a kind of a real, um, a real interesting, uh, uh, a real interesting thing. What I find the most interesting is is the Quebec Conservative Party, which appeared out of nowhere, and in the last election won, no seats, but they won fifteen percent of the vote, and they came in second place in a lot of different ridings. And um, they have a leader uh, who's a bit uh, controversial, we'll say, Mr. Duhem, but uh, who made a mark by coming from nowhere and saying, you know, if, if you're a politician and you want to get power, what you normally do is join one of the parties that's already there, not to start a new party from scratch and say, okay, now we're going to, now we're going to run. So, um uh, it all, it will see how it all shakes out. And remember, when you've got more than two parties running in our system uh, of elections, the party with the most seats win, the party who wins the seat gets the most votes in that seat. But if you've got four parties, one party can get 26%, 125, 124, 123. The guy with the 26 wins the seat with three quarters of the people being against him or her. And that's how, you know, uh, that's how um, things can shake out. So it could be a shot if people for some reason get tired of the CAQ for some reason, and the CAQ is still well ahead in the polls, but if they get tired of them, the, that vote splits out in three other different directions, who, who knows? You know, who can win an election? You know, you'll end up with a minority uh, government for sure. In other words, nobody will win more than half the seats if if all the opposition scatters like that. But it is, it is a, I'm not sure if it was a surprise that the PQ won that seat because I didn't see the polls. I didn't see the polls, but I would say it's a surprise. That, that, but that's that's way more than the polls would have indicated for sure, for sure, for sure. But I don't know what local, you know, what local conditions. I think uh, they ran uh, Pascal Paradis, who was a pretty well-known politician from quite a while back. So he had a very good pedigree, their candidate. The other ones were pretty, uh, pretty new. Yeah, pretty new. Um, okay, anything else? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the federal... Well, again, the federal election is not due again for another year. Um, a lot can happen in that time. It, there, it's for sure that the Canadian public are are fed up with the Liberal uh, administration. Um, and because we have two big parties and then a couple of smaller parties, uh, it's clear and has we've never had a winner in a Canadian election that hasn't been either a conservative or or a liberal. And I use the word conservative in a small C direction, not a big C direction. Um, uh, but um, you know, so uh, it's um, it's clear that when the people decide, the conservatives will end up winning. And um, we'll have a different uh, government with a different leader there. Uh, 
uh, with with minority representation from the Bloc Québécois and from the NDP and maybe the Green Party a little bit. And, um, uh, you know, the Liberals know this. They know they're behind. What they're going to do to fix that, if anything, we, you know, it's not uh, clear at this point. Um, there isn't a crisis in Canada, thank goodness. There isn't a crisis of existence. There isn't a crisis of um, uh, setting people off one against another. There isn't the kind of division that they have in the US that we have here. Uh, the economy is, you know, doing decently well, but not, not phenomenally well. People are upset about inflation. People are upset about the high interest rates. But that's par for the course. That's not so important in the long run. In the long run, what's important is that the country is not drastically divided the way Israel is, the way the United States is, uh, even the way the other countries are. Uh, you know, I mentioned Hungary um, or Poland. Those are two Eastern European countries where... I mean, there is a really strong division between people on the right and people on the left. And in Canada, we don't have that. So I think that's uh, that's a really, uh, we're lucky. We're one of the few countries like that. You know? and, um, and we don't face any exterior, exterior threats. We don't have threats from our neighbors to take us over. We don't have threats from Russia. We don't have threats from China. We don't have threats from the United States. So we're we're kind of just uh, floating along in a pretty lucky situation, is what I would say, and we we ought to be thankful for it. Really, uh, you know, uh, when you travel abroad, you realize what advantages we have. Um, one of the luckiest things, and I'll finish with this: one of the luckiest things we have is to have the United States as our southern neighbor, because if the positions were reversed and the U.S. is north of us. We'd be the ones that have, would be coping with all that massive migration of of people from Latin America and from yeah from Latin America and Haiti uh, trying to get into our country. But you know they'd have to walk through the U.S. first to get here. So in that way, we are really fortunate. Anyways, thanks so much again. We'll see you um, next week. If you have something you'd like me to talk about, just let me know, and I will try to do that. I, I try to get inspired by what's going on during the week or what I happen to be reading or something like that. Okay.